in 2 Kings chapter 2, and last week we finished with verse 16. Before our lesson concluded last week, we read about the sons of the prophets asking Elisha if they could send 50 strong men to seek the whereabouts of Elijah's body. God had just taken Elijah up in a whirlwind, and he was seen no more after that, the Bible tells us. And like many Bible students since that event, these sons of the prophets wondered what happened to the body of Elijah. And as I said last week, I know of no certain passage that plainly tells us that answer. And I had initially thought about moving on without too much comment on the matter, but I think it would be useful for you to look at the mystery with me, specifically some scriptures that have been used to formulate various theories about Elijah after he was taken up. And this exercise will also help you with your own Bible study, which I hope you do regularly. I hope you don't just read through a passage and go, well, I didn't understand most of it. I'll just go to the next one. I hope you study your Bible and that you're not content to arrive at a passage that you don't understand and then just go on. That's a hunger that you ought to have. Not everyone knows how to study their Bibles, and so when the pastor and I have the opportunity, which is every time we teach, we want to help you be a better Bible student. And so hopefully that will happen today. The first mention concerning Elijah's whereabouts after he was taken up is in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, which we read last week. We read the whole fourth chapter, in fact. But verse 5, just to remind you, says, and this is the Lord speaking to Malachi, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now at this time in history, Elijah had been taken up long ago. And in this verse, what we know from what Malachi wrote is that Elijah the prophet will be sent sometime after he was taken up. After Malachi's day and before the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord we studied at great length a few years ago when we studied the book of Revelation. There, after the opening of the sixth seal, and it's in Revelation chapter 6 and 7. You can read about the day of the Lord starting in the Old Testament, and over and over again it gives the same descriptors of what will happen when that seal is opened. And because Malachi was the last... Old Testament book before that 400 year period of what is called intertestamental silence, that is the silence between the Old and the New Testament. We don't have any scriptures written during that time. Because that was the last book, then we look to the New Testament for the next mention of Elijah's name. Now, Elijah's name is mentioned several other times in the Old Testament, but specifically we're looking at what happened to Elijah after he was taken up. 
not just at every mention of Elijah's name in the Bible. That would be quite a lengthy study, I think. In the New Testament, and because it was written in Greek, there's a slight difference in the translation of Elijah's name. And in the New Testament, you'll see it written in English as Elias, E-L-I-A-S. So when you see Elias or you hear Elias, think Elijah. Matthew chapter 11, verses 11 through 15. If you're taking notes, you may want to write that down. Matthew 11, verses 11 through 15. Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, Among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if ye will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. So what did Jesus say in that verse, in that passage about Elijah, whom he called Elias? He said, if you will receive it. Now that's a key, remember that. If you will receive it. This John the Baptist is the fulfillment of that second coming of Elijah, that second appearance of Elijah. Now, it's not that Elijah physically turned into the body of John the Baptist. I don't think that at all is what is meant by this. But rather the spirit of Elijah was the same spirit that John had, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit spoke through Elijah and Elijah spoke to the people. The Holy Spirit spoke through John and John spoke to the people. The next verse that I looked at was in Matthew chapter 16, Matthew 16, verses 13 through 16. When Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias or Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And at least two things stand out in this verse, in these verses. One, some men said Jesus was Elijah. Why would they say that? Because they knew the prophet Malachi prophesied that it would happen. The problem with that was that in chapter 11 of Matthew, Jesus had told them that to those who would receive it, John the Baptist was Elijah which was for to come, or who was prophesied to come. 
Now, a second thing that stood out in these verses for me is that Simon Peter, who also knew Malachi's prophecy, disagreed with those who said Jesus was Elijah come again. He received Jesus' instruction that it was John the Baptist and that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. He received that. Remember what Jesus said back in Matthew 11. He said, and if you will receive it, this is Elias. So by implication in that text, and I believe by deduction in Matthew 16, we may conclude that those who say Jesus was Elijah the prophet were people who would not receive that John the Baptist was Elijah the prophet. Because Jesus said, if you will, receive it. And there are some who would not receive it. And these who would not receive it were carnal and not spiritual. They They didn't look at the spiritual, but at the carnal. When Jesus says it, that ought to be enough. There shouldn't be any arguing about it. And this observation, I believe, is borne out in another passage about John the Baptist. Now, if you're a fairly new Bible student and you read the Gospel of John, you'll see very, very quickly in the first chapter, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Well, that's not John the Apostle who wrote the book of John, the Gospel according to John. That's John the Baptist that John the Apostle is writing about. It doesn't always say John the Baptist. It'll say John more often than it says John the Baptist. So you have to pay close attention. But in John chapter 1, verses 19 through 24, listen to what it says. And this is the record of John, John the Baptist, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? Okay, so there are people, there are religious people, priests and Levites, who came all the way from Jerusalem to ask John the Baptist a question, Who are you? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elias? Art thou Elijah? And he saith, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, No. Then said they unto him, Who art thou? that we may give an answer to them that sent us. What sayest thou of thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. Now that's Isaiah. And they which were sent were of the Pharisees. Now there's your key right there. They which were sent were of the Pharisees. Now you may have, after looking at what Jesus said, that John the Baptist is Elias, if you'll receive it, and John the Baptist telling these Pharisees, I'm not Elias, you may say, wait a minute, that seems like a contradiction. That's why I asked you to pay attention to the word receive, if you will receive it. Why does John the Baptist tell the Pharisees he was not Elias or Elijah? To answer this, let's look at one thing we know about the Pharisees, particularly those who persecuted Jesus and later the Apostle Paul and the rest of the Apostles. 
Those Pharisees did not receive Jesus. They were unbelievers. They were religious. They were intelligent. But they were unbelievers. John chapter 3, verses 27 through 33. John 3, verses 27 through 33. John answered and said, now this is still John the Baptist speaking to these unbelievers. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom which standeth and heareth him rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, my jo- this my joy therefore is fulfilled. He must increase and I must decrease. He that cometh from above is above all, that is of the earth. He that is of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth. And he that cometh from heaven is above all. So there are two separate people, two separate categories of people, the earthy and the heavenly. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifieth, and listen to this, no man receiveth his testimony. He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. So John the Baptist teaches us here that we can receive nothing, particularly the spiritual here, except it be given from heaven. Pharisees were spiritual actors with carnal appetites. They were spiritual actors with carnal appetites. And those who did receive and receive Jesus' testimony were receiving the truth that God is truth. So to sum up why John the Baptist told the Pharisees he was not Elijah, when Jesus said John the Baptist was Elijah, It was because, in my view, that those Pharisees to whom John spoke were not the ones to whom Jesus said, and if you will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. They didn't want to receive it. So to them, John the Baptist could not be Elijah. Why, they rejected Jesus, who was prophesied by Moses and the prophets, and he said, I'm he, I'm here. You're looking at him. And he said, no, you're not. So they wouldn't receive that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God, as Simon Peter testified, why would they receive that John the Baptist was Elias, which was for to come? And this is the same reason Jesus spoke to the multitudes in parables in Matthew 13. Listen to what he said in Matthew 13, verses 10 through 11. And the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them? In parables, he answered and said unto them, Because it is given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. So why have any discussion about these unbelievers who are not seeking truth to try to convince them that Jesus is the Christ? He's already told them plainly, and they didn't believe him. The the prophets testified that Christ would come and be born of a virgin. They did not believe so why have a discussion with them about John the Baptist being the, the second appearance of Elijah, if you will? 
and to the Pharisees who interrogated John the Baptist in John chapter 1, it was not given to them to know that John the Baptist was Elijah, which was for to come. Now, the next significant event concerning Elijah's whereabouts is in Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 3. Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 3. And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John his brother, and bringeth them up into an high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment, that's his clothing, was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias, that's Elijah, talking with him. Now that verse says only that Jesus was transfigured. Not Moses or Elijah, that's my understanding there. And we know from the first half of Deuteronomy chapter 34 and verse 7, Deuteronomy 34 verse 7, the first half of that tells us that Moses died a physical death. It said, and Moses was 120 years old when he died. We know from our present text and the verses before it there in 2 Kings that Elijah did not die a physical death but was taken up by a whirlwind, and he was seen as he was taken up. Elisha saw him, and then he saw him no more after that. There was no burial, no funeral, no moving his body from one place to another. And no, uh, we know he didn't die a physical death there. Furthermore, we know that Peter, for sure, and probably James and John recognized Elijah at this mount where the transfiguration took place. Elijah was in some kind of recognizable form because of what Peter said later. And then after this, after this at the transfiguration, we don't see Elijah appear again. At least he's not named if he did though he is mentioned a few more times in the New Testament. Now, there is a theory, and that's what this is, a theory, offered by some theologians that Elijah will be one of the two witnesses in the book of Revelation in chapter 11, verses 3 through 12. Now, I know that's kind of a long passage there, but let me read it to you. And I want you to listen for those two witnesses, and I want you to listen for things that might make them think that this is going to be Elijah. That's why it's important to study verse by verse. You've heard a lot of these things already. And, and Jesus said, and I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven that it rain not. Now what are two things we've already heard that Elijah did? He brought fire down from heaven. He, he prayed that it wouldn't rain for the space of three and a half years in Samaria, and it didn't. And have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. Now, who does that remind you of? 
Moses. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half, and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them, and make merry, and shall send gifts to one, one to another. Because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt on the earth. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them, and they stood up on their feet. And great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, Come up hither. And they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. All right. That passage is one of the passages used by theologians who have that theory that Elijah was one of those two witnesses. And for the, mo- for the most part, the reading I've done on it, they believe the other one was Enoch. Now, what are two things Enoch and Elijah have in common? Neither one of them died a physical death. They were taken up by the Lord. The Bible said, and I'll read a scripture about that in a moment, that Enoch was translated. Now, we don't know in the Revelation passage where these two witnesses come from, that is their origin, nor are we given their names. The ability to send fire out of their mouth and to shut up heaven that it rain not are reminiscent of Elijah, for he did both. He didn't send fire out of his mouth, prayed, and it came down from heaven. And the turning of waters into blood and smiting the earth with plagues remind us of Moses did in Egypt, but Moses has already died, so for him to die again would be to have a second death, so I don't think he's in the picture there. And then the Moses and Elijah, of course, appeared on the mountain where Jesus was transfigured. Others who think the witnesses are Enoch and Elijah, particularly Enoch, draw from Genesis chapter 5 verse 24. Listen to what's said about Enoch. It said, and Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. That means he no longer was there. God took him. He translated him. And then if you look back in 2 Kings chapter 2 verse 3, which we already studied, it says in the second part, knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today. Take away, in that passage, referring to Elijah, and took in the passage about Enoch are the same word in the Hebrew language. So that tells us they were taken basically the same way. So what the Lord did to Enoch, he did to Elijah here in our text. Enoch was translated that he should not see death. God took him. And God also took up Elijah without Elijah dying a physical death. I think that's very clear. Hebrews chapter 9 verses 27 through 28 is another text used by those who believe that Enoch and Elijah were the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11, or will be the two witnesses. Hebrews 9, 27 through 28, and I think these verses always need to be read together or studied together because they're one sentence. 
where it says, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. And because of the phrase, it is appointed unto men once to die, and because Enoch and Elijah did not die, some Bible students or theologians have proposed that those two witnesses are Enoch. And in the Revelation passages, those witnesses die. It tells us that. Their bodies laid on the street for three and a half days, and then they resurrect from the ground. The spirit of, the, of life from God enters them, and they stand up on their feet, and then they're taken up to heaven in a cloud, and everybody sees it. Okay. So regarding what happened to Elijah after he was taken up in 2 Kings, we can only speak where the Bible speaks. And it is spoken, and I'm not going to add anything outside of that. I offered you up a a theory that is sometimes presented as to who those witnesses will be. But I'm satisfied with what I've learned from it, and I would not suggest getting too hung up on where Elijah's body is. To me, it's the same fruitless adventure as trying to find Moses' body because it was said after Moses died that that where he was buried, no man knew unto this day, unto the day that that was written. Or as uh, people who've hunted for the ark and the, the pilot in 1951, I believe it was, who said he flew over... Uh, the Mount Ararat there in Turkey, and supposedly had a picture of the ark, and it, uh, you know, things like that occupy more of people's time than studying the Word of God, and so I'll leave you with that. That's something for you to consider. You may have other positions on it or other ideas, and I hope if you do, they are because you have studied the Bible, not just scrolled on the Facebook and said, hey, these are the witnesses I heard. Always get your information from the Bible, and when you don't know, say, I don't know, and that's, that's what I'm happy to do. Okay, back to our text in 2 Kings. Now, that was, that was part of our text, uh, is addressing that issue, but let's look, we're in 2 Kings chapter 2, and let's look now in verse 18. Now that these 50 strong men have gone out, even though Elisha said, no, you shouldn't do it, and when they came again to him... For he tarried at Jericho, he said unto them, Did I not say unto you, Go not? Now verse 17 told us, as we read last week, that these 50 men went out for three days, and they did not find the body of Elijah. So they come back to Elisha, and we might have said, I told you so. I told you not to go. I knew you weren't going to find anything. God took him. How are you going to find someone whom God took on this earth? And they further bore testimony to their own unbelief because they walked by sight. Verse 19, And the men of the city said unto Elisha, Behold, I pray thee, the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord seeth. But the water is not, and the ground barren. I suppose this is what it's like to be a new pastor. 
The carnal people come to you with the carnal requests. Always. And we have to take care of carnal things. We do. We have to, if something's broken, we need to know about it so we can fix it. If something needs to be replaced or updated or secured, we need to know about those things. If someone has a flat tire out here in the parking lot, please tell us. Don't say, oh, that's a carnal matter. I'll dare not bother my church members with that. So I'm certainly not discouraging anyone from making their needs known. We all have them. But think about what has just happened here in our text As a newly appointed prophet, Elijah had to bear with the sons of the prophets second-guessing God's work. Jesus bore long with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, questioning his work. And out of all that, the people are concerned with a water shortage. It would be like somebody coming up during the, the tribulation when there's a great need for people to believe on Jesus Christ and saying, we're we're out of water. My car's empty with gas. Well, the Lord's coming. (laughs) That's a secondary matter. If all of our cars vanished off the parking lot right now, the Lord is coming still, and we need to tell people. So poor Elisha, Uh, This would have been a good time for these sons of the prophet to connect this drought with disobedience because it is connected. After all, it wasn't long ago that Elijah prayed that it would not rain in the space of three and a half years when Ahab was on the throne. And that drought was the result of a Baal worshiping king, a Baal worshiping queen, and a Baal worshiping people, minus the 7,001, including Elijah, who had not bowed their knee to Baal. Shouldn't these stiff-necked Israelites equate their drought with sin? They want the consequence to go away without addressing the cause. That's a problem. It says in verse 19, and the ground barren, it's empty, as as it would naturally be when there is no water. For an Israelite, this should have been a simple fix. Because in their law, in Leviticus chapter 26, verses 3 through 4, Leviticus 26, verses 3 through 4, Listen to what God promised them that has everything to do with what we just read. If ye will walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them, then I will give you rain in due season, and the land shall yield her increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. What is the only reasonable conclusion? The land and the trees did not yield their increase because it did not rain. And it did not rain because God withheld the rain. And God withheld the rain because His people did not walk in His statutes and commandments.
So these sons of the prophets, rather than pledging to Elisha to do all that the Lord hath commanded, which would have solved the problem, they said, we need water and we need for our land to produce. What did they leave out? The most important thing, obedience to God's commands. He told them, if you'll do this, I'll give you water. It was so simple. And this is the same thinking error people have in the world and in many churches today. We have a drought. You know, in West Texas, that's where I grew up. Well, mostly in Lubbock. And I've done a lot of traveling in West Texas. From family, for work reasons, and for some recreation. And I love to stop at a Dairy Queen out in West Texas. Most of those towns are between 30 and 35 miles apart from each other. Most of them have a north-south highway and an east-west highway as the main highway. And there's a Dairy Queen in every one of them. What started me loving Dairy Queen is when my grandmother used to take us there for Bean Day. Any of you ever been to Bean Day at Dairy Queen? No, that was a West Texas... Uh, peculiarity, and they were. It was ninety nine cents for all you could eat: red beans, cornbread. You're getting hungry, aren't you? The, you know what stuck out to me? Oh, the beans were good. It was the ninety nine cents. You all know me, very thrifty. But in those Dairy Queens, there was always a table, and if you got there early enough, you could catch the farmers sitting around that table, and they had their own coffee cups, and they usually would have a pegboard on the wall where they hung their coffee cups. And they'd pay for their coffee and drink it, and then wipe their cup out, sit it back up there, and be back the next morning. And many of their conversations were about the weather, usually about not having enough rain in West Texas. Rarely was it about the floods. That must be reserved for the dairy in southeast Texas and southern Louisiana. But I wonder how many of those Dairy Queen fellowships involved prayer that people would repent from sin and turn to the Lord. The water was always a subject of conversation. But I don't know whether repentance and prayer was. I didn't stay long enough to know that. And in the case of the farmers in Israel, the practice was to for rain rather than turning to the Lord. That's what they were asking Elisha to do or to consider. And you know whether it rains or not is up to God. It's not up to us. We can't control weather. But what we can control is whether we turn to the Lord. And so we need to worry about what we can control, not what we can't control. And enabled by God's gracious spirit, I can control whether I turn to him in repentance and faith. And that's what these Israelites needed to do. Now let's look at verse 20 at Elisha's response to them. And he said, bring me a new cruise. Now that's a vessel like a pot. And put salt therein, and they brought it to him. What a command. In response to the drought, bring me salt in a cruise. 
in a pitcher. Not water, but salt. Now, what does salt represent in the Bible? Well, there are several things it's associated with. The first time we see salt mentioned in the Old Testament is in the description of the war between Sodom, Gomorrah, and some of the other Gentile nations. It described where the Dead Sea was, or the Salt Sea, or the Veil of Salt, or the Veil of Sedum. It's said it's given different names in the Bible. We see salt next when God turned Lot's wife into a pillar of salt, because God, the angel of God of the Lord, had been sent to tell them, "Get out of here! Don't look back." The one who looked back, so she turned to a pillar of salt. In Leviticus chapter 2 and verse 13, God commanded that every meat offering be seasoned with salt. In fact, in the book of Numbers chapter 18, God had a salt covenant with his people. You chapter five, 5, verse 13, Jesus told his disciples, ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men. So with all these different appearances, and different uses of salt in the Bible, what are we to make of the appearance of salt in our text? On one hand, salt was associated with death, the Dead Sea, and judgment, as in the case of Lot's wife. On the other hand, salt was associated with a covenant with the Lord and his people. And salt was associated with a spiritual savor found in in faithful Christians. Perhaps it was that Elijah showed Israel that the salt, which showed their spiritual deadness, would now be used to give them life-giving water. The children of Israel needed to be salt that had savor, that they may have lives pleasing to the Lord. But as we're going to see here, the use of salt in this text was for the purpose of healing. And in a very spiritual and practical sense, these Israelites needed to see that this miracle of using salt to bring water was going to be from the Lord. Who else would use salt in a cruise to bring forth water from the earth? The same one who by the hand of Moses cast a tree into bitter waters at Marah and made them sweet. And in verse 21, and he went forth unto the spring of the waters and cast the salt in there and said, thus saith the Lord, I have healed these waters. There shall not be from thence any more death or barren land. And we may assume that this spring was dry or drying up. And it was in the eyes of the people a broken spring. It was a dead spring, a sick spring, one of those. And after Elisha cast the salt into the dry or the drying spring of waters, he said, Thus saith the Lord, I have healed these waters. You see that there in 
In verse 21, I have healed these waters. Don't lose sight of this. God healed the waters. Now look at what else we learn. It says there shall not be from thence any more death or barren land. And this is the type of everlasting healing that God brings to the thirsty sinner. Because the spring had been healed, the land would bear fruit. Those two went hand in hand. And when, when the sinner is healed through the gospel, he may also bear fruit. In him spiritually, there will be no more death or barren land. I'm going to live forever. Amen. Just as the land would never thirst again, because it received the healing from the salt, so the thirsty sinner will never thirst again when he receives the healing of the gospel. God told us about the salt covenant he had with his people in Second Chronicles 13, verses 4 through 5. It was referenced by Abijah. And it says, Second Chronicles 13, verses 4 through 5, And Abijah stood up upon Mount Zimmeraim, which is in Mount Ephraim, and said, Hear me, thou Jeroboam and all Israel, Ought ye not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingdom over Israel to David forever, even to him and to his sons by a covenant of salt? Now, we know David the king, the man died, didn't we? So he can't rule over anything forever. That's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ of the seed of David. To Jesus of the seed of David, God gave Israel, all the believers of all time, by a salt covenant forever. It says forever. And that salt covenant represents the gospel covenant between God and those who are in him through faith in his son. And with that, we'll stop and pick up with verse 22 next week. Any questions about the lesson or comments about the lesson? All right. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth that we learn. And we pray the Holy Spirit would mold our hearts so that we receive this truth, we're able to understand it, and then act upon it in our Christian lives. May it make us stronger, may it make us hungrier for more of the truth in the coming days. Bless our congregation, our pastor, as we go into the next hour. May the singing, the preaching, the praying, the praising be pleasing to you. And Lord, if we have lost our Savior, salt us today. And if one does not know Jesus Christ has not accepted the gospel message, we pray your spirit would draw them today that they may never thirst again, having trusted in Jesus' work at Calvary. It's in his name we pray. Amen.